welcome to SFI Not So Live. It's November 2023 and a year on since we covered this subject before um, with our very special guest of today. So before I do introduce our special guest, let's just quickly introduce our stalwarts. Tony, I'm going to come to you first for a little quick introduction for any new listeners, please. Yes, thanks, Jay. Hi, everybody. My name is Tony Hall and I am Head of Business Development here at Saffron. So my role really is focused on ensuring that our intermediary partners get all the support that they need in order to help their clients and help us. Fabulous. Thanks, Tony. And Phil, welcome. A little introduction for you as well, please. Hi, Jay. Yeah, I'm Phil Lawford. I'm Saffron's National Account Manager. Uh, I spend most of my time looking after uh, key broker relationships. So I spend a lot of time with mortgage intermediaries and talking to them. Wonderful. And just before I introduce our special guest, I'm just going to uh, reference why our special guest is here. So a year ago, um, we're on our anniversary and a month of, or a couple of months of um, the disastrous mini budget that had quite an impact on our markets. So um I am very pleased to say that we, a year later, are going to have a little look back over the last year in our first year of Rishi Sunak and see if things have stabilised and got a little bit better. So, um, Ray Bulger, welcome back to the podcast one year later. Quick introduction to the audience, please. Uh, good to be back, and uh, thanks for inviting me. Uh, yeah, just to update people, you know, I've, uh, as, as many people know, been with John Charcoal a long time now. I joined John Charcoal in 1989. Uh, having previously worked in the stock exchange and uh, as a stockbroker, and uh, I've now slowly traded down, and I, I, I'm now part time uh, at, at my uh, extended age. And uh, you know, as long as long as I continue to enjoy talking to people, looking at what's going on in the market, and Ooh. John Charcoal think I have value, um, I'll, I'll carry on. Ooh. Thank you, Ray. It's really good to have you back with us. Um, and uh, you might be advancing in age, but certainly in experience, you can put a lot of us to shame. So thank you very much for, for joining us. So as I said, quick caveat first, this has been recorded on the 30th of October 2023. So some of the rates and, and items that we discussed may be slightly out of date by the time you listen to us. So I'll go back to what I said a little while ago. We're looking back on the last year. So we're officially a year of Rishi Sunak in government and Liz Truss's bogged off um i'll get everyone's opinion on that in just a second but we're here to review the last year um we all know the effects uh some of us quite personally as tony will talk about later i'm sure um of what happened after the mini budget in 2022 um and you know now a year on how are things going what does the market look like the markets look like but what's our, our sector look like and you know Maybe we can have a little prediction on what might happen over the next few months, especially as we've got a Bank of England decision in just a few days' time. So, first of all, Ray, I'm going to come to you as the fountain of knowledge. Um, and just for a little summary of what you think the last year looked like based on, you know, what happened during the mini-budget. Maybe just for the sake of those that might not have listened to last year's podcast for quite a while, just maybe just explain what the mini-budget did to the markets and how that has had the impact it's had now, if you don't mind. Okay, well, I think the main reason the mini-budget sweeped the markets was that um, despite proposals to significantly decrease taxes, uh, with the suggestion from the, the then Chancellor, quite a time, that there would be further proposals for tax decreases, there was no corresponding suggestion at the same time as to how, as to how uh, money was going to be raised. So the market saw this as a massive increase in borrowing, probably to the tune of 50 to 75 billion. And on top of a government balance sheet that was already not looking too clever after the QE of um, COVID, etc., that just completely split the market. Guilt yields shot up, and that, of course, meant that uh, lenders not only had to pay a lot more money for whatever money they wanted to borrow to lend on fixed rates, but because the market was so volatile, um, it was really difficult for lenders to actually know their products. So we, we actually had a period of, uh, of several weeks where it was virtually impossible to get a mortgage above 85% LTV. Same situation applied after the global financial crisis and after Brexit. There were periods of time when 95% LTV mortgages disappeared. Uh, but now, um, uh, now obviously the market's pretty well back to normal. I, I think the um, emergence of a, a chancellor, a new chancellor, who very quickly changed tack 
really helped the market to recover, but it took, of course, several months. Having said that, you know, by early this year, interest rates had fallen back quite sharply. Um, and, and so we were then able to actually um, start looking at slightly more sensible mortgage rates. Uh, and I think over the last few weeks, uh, we have seen rates come down, which obviously, you know, guilt yields come down, which obviously has resulted in mortgage rates coming down. And what that tells you is that the market is getting more and more confident that bank rate is going to peak at five and a quarter. So we've got the bank rate decision later this month, uh, later this week, I should say. Expectations are that both the Fed on Wednesday of this, this week and also the MPC on Thursday will keep rates unchanged. And I think the, the key question now is not have rates peaked, but how long are they going to stay at this level? And when they start falling, how quickly will they fall? But I think the fact we have seen, in particular, shorter term guilt yields, the two year guilt yield, fall quite a bit over the last few weeks does suggest the market's getting a bit more confident that rates may start to fall perhaps a bit quicker than some economists expect so my best guess at the moment is there's we some could, we, politics we, we at play here as well isn't there? We, we are coming up year. to a general election year we've got you've mentioned we've got a new chancellor in obviously since since Quarto disappeared um who has been a bit more sensible we've kind of got adults in play here but we have the potential of a, a general election coming up. Inflation really hasn't dropped as many would have perhaps predicted it would have done. It's not going down as low as it could for other factors, obviously. And we'll talk about the cost of living in a bit. But do you think, is your prediction then that come the second, it's the second, isn't it, that they're meeting, that the Bank of England will keep the base rate as it is? Uh, yes, I think it's. it would be very surprising if they felt the need to push bank rate up further. The news we've had since the last MPC meeting um, is positive in terms of keeping rates unchanged rather than pushing rates up. Um, the, the next key m- figure to look for is going to be the inflation figures, which are due mid-month. And the expectation is they'll fall from 6.7% to around 5%. So a large part of that falls already baked in because, because some of the big increase in oil prices that took place a year ago falls out of the year-on-year equation. Um, so it looks like at least that one of Rishi's five targets will, will be met well before the year end i've not heard about that in inflation so that was a positive thing for me to hear uh, that's for sure so that's that's good to hear so tony um the last year um a year it's been a year since we did the last podcast um could ask you about your mortgage rate later so don't talk about that in this bit but just summarize how the year was uh for you as a as a lender What's it look like and, and how's it been for the brokers, for borrowers and, and for yourselves to manage? You know, because it, it did really kick everyone up the butt, didn't it? Well, look, it's been, you know, it's been a it's been a tough year for, for, for customers and brokers uh, and lenders to a degree. Um, you know, the volumes haven't been there because the main thing is the affordability, obviously, you know, affordability and a rather benign house price or house purchase market. You know, the results today have shown that whilst there's um, a small bit of growth, it's, it's you know, it's, it's only 10% of what it was a year ago. You know, it's 1.1 in October, I think, HPR, and it was 9.6 this time a year ago. So I think that, that says it all. Um, house prices are dropping because people can't afford to borrow as much and therefore can't pay as mm-hmm. much. So the, bit, the hardest thing, I think, has been... Um, for lenders when rates were going up was to price products appropriately but to support um, brokers and customers with affordability at the same time because the two don't necessarily go hand Mm -hmm. in hand Um, so the positive is you've seen lenders starting to consider other ways to support affordability rather than just interest rate so you've seen using of um uh, the loan to income caps, looking at people extending those, looking at how affordability is calculated in in better ways. So I think from it's been a year where people are looking at how to support because we still need to get the volumes that we need to get. So from that side, it's been positive. Obviously, at the moment, rates are dropping, and you know, as Ray said, look, the all the the markets are anticipating that that it's not going to go up further but i think rates are primarily dropping at the moment because of a race to finish the year off and get the pipeline for 2024 <laughs> you know that's the key thing you know with you know lend like skipton on its own reduced over 100 rates 
last Friday, I think it was, across their portfolio. Wow. You know, the bigger, big, the bigger lender you are, the more products mm-hmm. you've got. So it's it's a nice it's a nice article. But you know, we're we're we've reduced a lot of ours. Um, you know, we're still we look at it every day to see where else we can support. So it's in all, it's been a very very strange year and and a, an interesting year. Lenders started off the year not getting the volumes they want. They're now trying to pick them up. For us, though, who's not really, you know, we're not a volume play. We're a specialist, more complex income, complex situation lender. We've actually seen ours improve because more people are requiring a lender that can take that compli- that common sense mm-hmm. view. And it's an overused word, but that's what our lending policy allows us to do. And in these challenging times, that's what's worked well for us. That's, that's understandable. Phil, um, let's talk about it from a broker perspective. You've worked many years working with brokers and you've know, got great broker relationships. It's been a tough year for them too. But also something we discussed, and anybody who listens to podcast regularly, there was a lot of media stirring, pushing and frightening that, that made borrowers a little bit scared, which made the broker's jobs harder. So you know, your summary of the last year and including some of those elements perhaps. Yeah, I mean, sort of sim- similar to Tony and Ray, it, it has been a real roller coaster of a year. Uh, I think probably brokers who were perhaps more um, in in the purchase end of the market, transacting purchase purchase uh, mortgages, were probably more adversely affected. Broker firms are, have got good relationships with their existing client base and work those would always would have always done better um, because the, I think the market this this year has has been predominantly propped up by refinance rather than uh, rather than purchases so so we've we've seen the certainly saw the, the pendulum swing over, over over the last 12 months so for me that's that's probably been the biggest the bit I suppose the biggest change there in in in, in, in the market, uh, and yeah, I, I think I think next year is going to be a tough year as well. Um, and what what the markets need is, is is certainty more than anything else. So uh, I know you you mentioned there's going to be, oh, we're pretty certain there's going to be it's going to be an ele- it's highly likely to be an election year next year. I, th- I think from, from a market point of view. We want lots of certainty and boringness, really, uh, not to not not spook the markets too much, which which will make everybody's life uh, in, in yeah certainly brokers' lives in the market a lot easier. If, if we if we've got an idea of what's likely to happen, mm-hmm. then um, then we're, we're you know we're likely to see rates stabilise and. Uh, yeah, hopefully see some confidence there back back on on the purchase side of the market. Well, since you've just left us on a bit of a politics note, Ray, I'm going to come to you on a politics note before we move on to just talk about mortgages and uh, mortgage customers. So, um, Labour Party conference, quite a, a, a pat on the back for um, our potential and uh, looking like potential chancellor. Do you rate her? Do you think her Bank of England-backed history will give confidence for the markets? Do you think she's got an opportunity as the first female chancellor to make a difference, or do you think she'll spook, or do you think Labour will spook? Uh, well, so far she's talking the talk. Um, she will probably get an opportunity to see if she can walk the walk as well. Um, I, I think one of the positives of the general election is that because both the main parties have fairly similar policies in terms of economics. You know, Labour pretty well said they're going to follow Tory policies. Actually, unlike some previous elections, um, we don't really have to worry too much about who's going to win. I mean, clearly it would be a major surprise if Labour didn't at least have the largest number of seats at the moment. Um, But I don't see that spooking the market now. So I think Labour have done a good job in terms of preparing the market for their um, becoming the party of government. But, uh, but I think one always has to reserve judgment until you see what they deliver in practice. For, yeah, for yes. The first year, um, we pretty well know what they're going to do. Um, we need to see a full five-year term. In particular, 
Um, their housing target, I mean, they've said they want to build one and a half million houses in the five years. Now, clearly, that's going to be focused more in the later years because this year's housing completions are probably going to be the lowest for many years. Um, so the starting point, because next year is likely to be weak as well, is going to be very low. And frankly, uh, I would be amazed if Labour have any more success in achieving their target of 1.5 million over five years than the Tories have of achieving their 300,000 target. Now, what, everybody talks about the need to build more houses, and we all know that's necessary. But what people tend to forget is that what, what when there's a downturn in the market, builders immediately slam the brakes on. So we saw in the last quarter of last year, all the new housing developers cut back their starts substantially, which is why housing completions are going to be low this year. And they'll probably be pretty low, even if they're a bit better next year for the same reason. So what we really need is not just a change in the planning rules, which clearly is a problem, um, but also some mechanism whereby when market demand falls because of a change in the economic situation, there is some mechanism in place through either local or central government whereby builders can be given contracts so they keep building and therefore we, we can maintain the flow of, of um, new properties at the same level rather than having these sharp movements whenever there's a change in the economic situation. Great insight. Okay. So uh, funnily enough, uh, house building and, and and housing does come up a little bit later on. So let's uh, we'll we'll park that for now. But that's a really good sound insight. Um, okay, so um, just one last question for me, Ray, before we move on to mortgages on the markets. They've all come down. Is there any long term impacts away from the mortgage market, away from the property market? Is there any long term impacts that we've seen that in the last year that haven't improved after after the turmoil of last year or? Are we now seeing a sort of return to some normality and stability across the board? Well, I guess it depends how long term you're looking at. But if you're really looking at long term impacts, um, I saw some interesting stats only the other day suggesting that in 50 years time, there are large parts of some of our coastal cities that are going to be underwater. So I think particularly bearing in mind we're getting more and more mortgages for 35 and 40 years. Uh, that poses an interesting challenge for lenders uh, and properties in areas that are um, subject to flood risk um, may well become more difficult not only to insure, but more difficult to perhaps mortgage as well. So there are some really challenging questions, I think, that everybody mm -hmm. in the housing sector uh, needs to look at um, so that we, can, we, you know, we don't suddenly come up against a problem um that, that hasn't hasn't that, that could have been foreseen and hasn't been adequately prepared for great insight great insight once again okay yeah. let's let's pop over to mortgages so as we, that's what we're here to talk about really um so I, I, we were talking just before we pressed record and we perhaps should have saved this because we were getting quite passionate about it. So see if we can get the passion about it. Right to the start of our podcast of November last year, the first thing we said was the rates are coming almost near 3%. So, um, you know, you can hear the, the shock on our voices that they were coming even close to 3%. Certainly rose above that slightly. Um, Tony, you, I'm coming to you personally on this one because I'm going to quote you. You literally said, <laughs> we're all in this together. Your fixed rate come up last year. Go on then. How did it impact you? What sort of kick in the guts did you get? Because um, you literally said it was coming up in the, in, the, in the year, this year just gone. So you must have felt some personal impact. Um, I have um, my well, my mortgage is split between fixed and tracker, so I've had the the, the worst of both worlds. So I've seen a um, a tracker rate go up fourteen times in the last year, uh, and my fixed rate, which I was on at um, I think I was on at three something because I've got an offset. I'm now at five seventy six, I think it is. So that's the impact. So the impact for me is about. A thousand pounds a month increase on my mortgage repayments in the last twelve months. So you know, and it, look, I'm I'm in a fortunate position that I can cope with that. You know, if if you couldn't, then God knows where you know and how people are feeling who are in this situation. So, but as I think people tend to forget, it's only a problem if your fixed rates coming up, and there was there's only a certain cohort of the UK whose fixed rates have matured at this point. 
So I know a lot are going to come next year and they are going to have payment shock, but don't panic about it until, you know, that it's inevitable that that's going to happen and you've got your broker and you've got your lender who's going to help you through that. But it did create a lot of panic last year when a lot of people didn't need to. Well, that's what I mentioned earlier with the media panic. Everyone went into into meltdown thinking absolutely everybody's mortgage is going up. If you'd listened to the news, honestly, you'd have thought every single person who had a mortgage, it went up by a minimum of five hundred pounds a five hundred pounds a month. It was it was it, yeah. it was just overhyped and it was pushed and it was politically motivated, no doubt. What was uh, so, Phil? I mean, the average person, but as you said, you said something earlier. You, you know, as as Tony's just said. There's only a proportion, and there's another proportion that might come next year and might get the same shock. But you know, how much of an impact did it have? Was it was it a small percentage of the market? Did you know? They, they, I can't imagine it was a huge. I, I, I actually felt really sorry for brokers because of uh, brokers were sometimes having to do three times the amount of work because of they they were advising on the best deal at the time when rates were higher. Then we had a bit of calm in the market and rates came down. So they almost had to rebroke them or, or, or re-advise if they'd that might have might have found them a better deal elsewhere. And then their product transfer came up and they were offered a better rate. So I did feel extremely sorry for sort of brokers having to do, you know, sometimes triple the amount of work. So I, th- I think that was. That's been the the, the, the the biggest challenge, and I suppose it brings us question to as lenders: can we can we make the market work any any better than it than it is, or than, than it has done? But uh, I think that was the biggest impact. Uh, but you know, brokers are you know most brokers are very good, and 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 they all want to do what's right for their clients. It's funny, actually, because, Tony, you mentioned Track on Compact again. Sorry. Um, you mentioned that because we spoke quite a lot on the last podcast about trackers and variables. That might be the right thing at the right time. The brokers weren't perhaps as experienced at offering those kind of products. Did you see a lot of that during the last year? Did you see a lot of people switching over and coming off the fixed rates? Or did, did, did people just stick with what they knew? Um, we've seen a lot of people utilising uh, discounts and trackers um, because when in, in a... In a constantly rising market, the fixed rates will have priced that in and will be at that peak point of the market, whereas the discounts and trackers won't. So for the right client, if you can cope with that payment increase every time it increases, actually the effect of taking the fixed versus a discount that might build up to that is actually cheaper. So it's all down to the right advice for the right circumstances. So they are, and, you know, typically a lot of discounted products are, and we're no exception, are ERC free. So it actually allowed people the opportunity to not fix themselves directly into a rate, but just see how it went, but have the option to fix it when it got to their point of, this is too much pain now, I don't want to see it go any further. So they're very... and they always will be a very valid um, tool for the right customer. It's just lent brokers forgot to do it for a decade. Do you see that change? Ray, you've been around a long time, uh, a long time, and you've seen brokers and the shift and change the market. Do you think nowadays the brokers are becoming, or do you think this year has sort of educated them on a variety of products and maybe pushed them away a little bit? Or do you think there's some element of education needed for brokers to, to look at these alternative products and, and give the right advice. How do you think the market has fared on that? Oh, I, there's always a need for education because things are always changing. Um, and as always, you'll get some brokers who are very switched on uh, and, and other brokers who will be less so. So from a client perspective, you know, picking the right broker is absolutely crucial. Um, and I've always taken the view that the best way to find a good broker is to talk to your friends, talk to your business colleagues, talk to your relatives, see not only who they recommend, but who they recommend avoiding, because some people will have had bad experiences. Um, but there are plenty of good brokers out there. Uh, so it's just a case of making sure you pick the right broker. Uh, and you know, the, the problem with with so many people is that they've got relatively little financial experience because they're not given much in the way of, of, of teaching at school. So particularly for first-time buyers, you know, they're starting off. Um, 
not necessarily knowing the questions to even ask. Uh, and, and, you know, this is where we get problems, for example, with people being sucked into using in-house advisors. Now, if you're going to an estate agent, many of them will, will, will try and almost blackmail you into seeing not only their in-house mortgage advisor, but also using their recommended solicitor. Uh, well, you know, if, if you are looking to sign a contract, which is what you're doing when you buy a property, why would you take advice from somebody who is acting for the past person on the other side of the contract? Um, and I think that's a particular problem with developers, where they'll try and steer people uh, in, into using their solicitor. And that problem was really highlighted with all these horrible leases where the lease doubles every 10 years. And whilst I've not seen any facts and figures, I suspect if you actually looked at which solicitors advised a lot of those buyers, a high proportion would have been the ones recommended by, by the developer. And that just highlights why if the advisor has perhaps a bigger financial interest in keeping you know, the person who provided the business happy than their actual customer, there's a bigger risk that in some cases, you know, the right advice won't be given. So yeah. It, yeah, it's always challenging for brokers, but there, but there are plenty of brokers out there. As And I suspect most of the brokers listening to this pod, podcast will be in the category of good brokers because it's the ones who are less good who will probably not take the trouble to listen to a podcast like this. <laughs> it's so yeah. true. That is so true. Absolutely. So true. And, and, and it takes us on to our education, Phil. I know this is a, a passion of yours. It takes us on to education of everybody, doesn't it? So it's, it's, it's youngsters coming through. As, as Ray was just saying, first-time buyers don't really understand the process of using a broker. They don't necessarily ask the right questions or know what to ask, and, and they'll fall into those traps. Is there anything you guys have been doing as, as lenders or is the market doing to, to kind of really push that and drive that forward? And we talk about it so often, don't we, that, you know, come, come the end of – end of high school we need more financial education and people you know youngsters need to understand how finance works and how money works and how the world works but with it, they're just not getting that anymore is there any sort of anything you've seen in the last year that's kind of given that up maybe a kick up the butt yeah it's it's starting to it's starting to happen now um you know fi you know financial education in schools is is starting to happen not 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 quickly enough uh and um, so, so I still think at the moment that the, the, the best or the first point of entry for financial education is, is, is when they speak to a good mortgage broker. That's really where it's starting at the moment. Um, it, so it, it's, it's not starting early enough, but, but we, we have started to see a few things um, happen. But, but there's so much more that needs to be done uh, starting starting from education in schools. Agree. Tony, just before we leave this section, I'm going to quote you again. I'm good at this, aren't I? Um, you said, and you said this, uh, you've said this oh, many, many times before, so I just wanted you to explain it one more time <laughs> again. You, no, no, it's all good. You always say the mortgage rates in the market is cyclical as it goes around in cycles and these things happen and, you know, it changes. We've had you just you just mentioned a while ago. We've had a decade of it, perhaps staying a bit more stagnant than it has done before. What would you predict is the the movement now? What's where do we look now? If we look at the next five years, bearing in mind we've had that shock of last year, we're not going to get back down to rates we were before. So you know, if you were to sort of say you know what the next part of the cycle might be, what would you predict? I think. I think let's wait and see what happens on Thursday at the MPC committee because that will determine whether um, the economists have got it right and thinking that 5.25 is the is the top of our latest cycle or whether it's a another step up. I'm not convinced either way yet. I know I know swap rates kind of are, but um, what I am sure is it's not going down fast. That's the one thing. So we might, you know, I, I think I think we're in a period of plateau that that base rate will stay robustly until inflation is firmly under control because the government has no other tool in its kit bag. It is nothing. That's the only thing it can do to to tackle inflation, stop people spending money on, and it's not even discretionary goods. It's stop people spending money to live. So until that changes, I don't see the pressure coming off. But I don't think we're going to see rates as low as we've seen them in the last decade. It's going to be a um, gradual move downwards, but I don't know to what point it will stop. 
it's not going to go. I don't think it'll go down to what it was before. But then again, we said that <laughs> in 2008, just before the credit crunch, that it would never drop that low, and it did. So who knows? Is the honest answer. Ray, just coming to you before we move on. Anything you want to say on that? In, in your many years of experience. Uh, well, just that um, because the um, dynamics of the housing market have changed so much over the years, um, I'm not convinced the Bank of England has actually fully reflected that in their strategy. So at the moment, about a third of all new house purchases are bought for cash. Uh, and uh, so increasingly, the housing market is probably going to go that way, you know, as more and more people you know, of my age um, and even younger uh, uh, paid off their mortgages uh, and first time buyers are a bit later getting onto the property market. So um, that means affordability um, is a completely different question for somebody buying for cash. Uh, and also because, again, compared with in the 2000s, when most people had very great mortgages, if, if, if the government wanted to change interest rates in the 1990s and the 2000s, it had a pretty immediate impact on most people's affordability. Now, you know, as Tony's already said, um, because most people have got fixed rates, it takes quite a long time. And it's going to be another two years or so before the full impact of yeah. these changes is filtered through, by which time we'll probably see rates falling. So um, the, the Bank of England, I think, in the future needs to think about alternative ways of, of, of atta attacking the economy when it needs to attack the economy, uh, because uh, the, the, the market is going to continue to move in the, in the direction it's moved over the last few years, I think. And ha housing is really the only main area where it can affect people's uh, interest costs, because you know, if you've got a balance on your credit card and the interest rate goes up by 1%, well, you know, you're paying a few, a, a very tiny amount extra each month. It, it doesn't really have a big impact on your monthly budget. It's, it's the mortgage. It's the only big impact. And so, so I think that's something the government, needs, the Bank of England rather needs to think about. That's cued me up beautifully to the cost of living section um, because that is a, a huge section we need to talk about now because it's one of the biggest influences we've had over the last year. Um, We've had the Russia-Ukraine conflict, which has sent fuel and and food prices up. Everyone's pockets are being pinched. Everyone's struggling a little bit. Even even all of us around here can feel the can feel the pinch in our pockets. It's not nobody's been left out this time. It's not just you know the the sort of lower end of the pay scale anymore. It's starting to hit the middle classes. Um, We've seen some drop in energy, well, should we say plateauing in again in energy prices, although the base rate's gone up, or sort of the day rate's gone up, so actually nobody's really seeing any benefit yet. Um, that is affecting affordability. Tony, I'm going to come to you because you said affordability earlier, so I'll come to you first. Affordability is, is a big issue at the moment still. Um, we've talked about inflation. It is, it's showing a downward trend. Um, I don't think that's anything the government's done. I think that's, the, you know, that's a, as Ray was just saying, a Bank of England mechanism, but you know how is how has it been for for borrowers with regards to affordability and what's been done to help them? It's tough because most people's um, the the equation for calculating affordability is pretty much linked to either a variable standard variable rate or some form of other metric, um, which obviously has been increased over 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 the last year as as lenders have put up their standard variable rates. Or if you're a lender that allows people to calculate it off the pay rate, if it's five years or more, those have gone from three to six percent. So they've doubled. So the actual mechanism of being able to borrow what you want has got twice as hard mm -hmm. in effect. OK, so that's the biggest thing. People cannot borrow as much. And that's why you're seeing house prices dropping, because people can't afford to pay as much. And obviously, then you've got the dreadful thing now of a, what was it? And I might be making this stat up, so caveated for that is I might be making this up, but a 96% increase in Gazundi. Mm. I saw that. I think it was 96%. I didn't realize that's that high, but yeah, I do, it's yeah, very high, I wasn't it? Was, I think it was mm. high. Yeah. So that's, that's an ultimate impact of affordability and people going, oh, hang on a minute. I potentially I could pay less for this. So I'm going to leave it to the last minute and, and, you know, strike a hard bargain so affordability is tough for residential and then for buy to let it's got increasingly hard because the yields on the rents 
The only way the landlord can do that is to put the rents up, which exacerbates the problem that we all have with cost of living. So being able to cover the lender's um, calculation for interest rate co- interest cost coverage is getting even harder. So you've seen... So, so we're seeing... Um, I agree with that, your pooch just said. That was Sorry, he, he likes to chip there. in at some point. So he agreed yeah, with that. Yeah, I know. He, was, he, he, was, he agreed with me. I like it. Um, or disagree. No, that was an agreement, Mark. You'll soon know if you disagree with you. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. So for me, it's, it's, it's tough all around. And, and lenders are starting to do what they can. You know, funny enough, you know, I know it's harping back, but we were the first lender to, to um, adopt a change in our... Um, stress rate rules uh, imposed by the regulator in August 22 by reducing our stress rate from 3 to 2%. So that was one way we did it straight away. Other lenders are doing that by really looking at their affordability models or looking at their loan-to-income LTI caps and allowing people to borrow more for those with the higher incomes who can afford it. So that's kind of what's happened, but more is needed in the to, to, to actually get people to be able to borrow more it's 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 restrictive and it's particularly bad on the first-time buyer market isn't it phil you know first-time buyers are are, are really this year must have been hell for them but you know it was already bad and again we've got you know we've been talking about property and and demand and again there's not necessarily the properties there for first-time buyers and so the last year must have been quite a, a challenge for them. And, and with the cost of living crisis, it's just going to be exasperated. The rents are going up, the less chance of saving. It's, it's, just, a, it's just so complex. Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, first time by business has, 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 has gone down as in, li- in line with the market and, and, and purchase transactions. So, uh, again, I think, you know, a lot of first-time buyer businesses is, is, is also propped up by um, bank of mom and dad in helping them with a, a larger deposit, um, usually, or, or, or look at other solutions like things like joint borrow or sole proprietor where a parent can step in and, and help with affordability. So, uh, but, but yeah, there's, there's no doubt that's been impacted. So uh, although, although house prices have, have possibly stayed stayed more static uh, gone up less or, or even come down slightly it's the the affordability payments are uh, are impacting it so they're still having to put in more uh so they can afford payments at, at higher rates and that's uh that's where we are at the moment ray is a wider industry perspective how was the industry done to help first-time buyers has that has there been a focus this year have you seen new products coming out is there new innovations that you think oh okay somebody stood up and thought yes they need a bit of support well the skipton is the obvious one the skipton's 100 percent mortgage for renters um which um the, the rate on which they're dropping to 5.89 percent as from the 31st of october so 100% mortgage at 5.89% compared with the cheapest 60% LGV five-year fix, because that's what the Skipton deal is, that's one and a quarter percent cheaper. I think that's a, you know, a pretty tasty differential between the 60% rate and the 100% rate. So uh, I am a bit surprised no other, no other lender has followed Skipton on that route, because um, cl- clearly as long as you've got strict underwriting criteria, um, bearing in mind that we all know the key thing is affordability. So once you've established affordability, um, the uh, uh, coupled with the fact that nobody expects property prices to fall too far, you know, I think we're going to see property prices gently edge lower for the next 12, 18 months. But, but the amount you'll pay off your 100% mortgage, bearing in mind it's clearly got to be repayment, will probably pretty well compensate for any drop in property prices. So... That's the sort of product which I think is really interesting for first-time buyers. And the, I mean, at John Charcoal, until the middle of last year, we found that the split of our purchase business was about 50-50 between movers and first-time buyers. In the latter part of the year, that started to move more to first-time buyers. So although activity has fallen across both first-time buyers and movers, um, for the last few months, the split's been around, in fact, since early this year, the split's been around 60-40 in favour of first-time buyers. And I think the rationale for that is actually not difficult to understand. 
if you're a first-time buyer renting, then we all know the challenges of renting. Costs are shooting up, uh, and you're going to compare the different costs, but also the security of tenure you're going to get. It's not just a case of paying higher rents. For many people, it's a case of finding a suitable property. So there's an added incentive if you're a first-time buyer, particularly if you're renting rather than living with your parents. Whereas if you're a mover, um, a couple of years ago, you were perhaps thinking, oh, I can trade up, get a mortgage that's fifty or £100,000 more, get a bigger property. Now you're finding if you want to get that bigger mortgage, the extra cost is going to be significant, whereas before it would have been very affordable. So that, I think, is going to put a damper on the mover market for the next year or two until incomes catch up and mortgage rates come down a bit more. Whereas for first-time mm. buyers, those dynamics are still going to be the same. Yeah. One, one other suggestion, and this will horrify people in the pensions market, but if we're looking at ways we can help first-time buyers, one thing I would like the government to do is to give potential first-time buyers the opportunity to put the 8% of their money, of their salary that currently has to go into an auto-enrollment pension, give them the option to put that into a LISA. Um, And that would enable them to build up their deposit, and they probably only need to pay into the LISA for three or four years. Now, the government's just passed an act um, which is going to reduce the age at which you have to start contributing into an auto-enrolment pension from 22 to 18. And it's also going to mean that you have to contribute, and of course the company has to contribute, your employer, on your whole salary rather than only your salary above about 6500 So it would be an ideal time, in my view, when these changes take effect, which is expected to be sometime in 2025, for the government to also give people the option to have that money paid into ELISA and to give them the same tax benefits, i.e. that money is paid in out of gross salary rather than net salary, that would be a great boost, particularly for those who haven't got the support of the bank of mum and dad and have got to rely on saving their own deposit. Um, And then they can go back to putting money into their pension and because they've got their property, they'll be much better off in later life. And they, they, in most cases, I think, will easily be able to make up the shortfall in their pension. So that's something I'd like to see the government do. Um, but um, we'll, we'll see what happens. Let's hope someone listens, hey? Should we, maybe I'll just forward on the link to this podcast and have a little listen to Ray's <laughs> the ideas. Brilliant stuff. Um just uh, on that, actually, this is this is a good timing. We started talking about it, um, and I know it's a good chance to bring this in. Really, is to talk about landlords because they are a big part of the market. They are, and you know, Phil. I think it was only a podcast back, or if not two podcasts back, where you said there wouldn't be a rental market had it not been for private landlords because we haven't got any social housing. So, you know, landlords do play a huge part in in uh, the market. And there's been quite a lot of turmoil or potential turmoil for landlords this year with the introduction, potential, sorry, introduction and re-legislation, which has now been very back on. So, you know, the forcing of, of improved DPC ratings and um, the removal of Section 21, all looking like they're sitting on the edge of a knife at the moment and perhaps not happening, at least in the short term. This Tony, I'll let you come in. You haven't spoken for a while, but just you've you've really championed buy to let and landlords, and you know this is yeah. good news for the landlord. Perhaps not so much for the renter, but good news for the landlord. Um, it should hopefully keep that area of the market buoyant, and because there was concern, I think we spoke we spoke a few months back saying there's a chance that the buy to let market might drop off the shelf a little bit. But actually, um, this can keep it going. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm. I wasn't surprised with the rowing back of that. That was probably one of the least surprising sort of bits of news that they were going to row back on it because it had been alluded to and hinted. So it wasn't a surprise, but the disappointment that he's just not been replaced with anything else. And that's what that's what concerns me, and that's what I I was quite annoyed about. Frankly, is that yeah, sort of seem to be kicking the can down the road. Now, I'm, I'm not saying it was a bad thing, because if it was unrealistic that it was going to be achieved by 2025, I, I, yeah, the pragmatist in me says, yeah. But it was just annoying that we've sort of kicked the can down the road and not replaced it with, with, with anything else. Mm-hmm. And 
for all the criticisms of EPCs, that's all we got at the moment. Uh, so that's sort of where I am. So I've, I've probably contradicted myself with, with the answer, but that's that's just how I feel about I, it. I, I feel the same. I feel really conflicted by it because there's so many different elements. This year we always talk about the state of the um, housing stock in this country, and this is a way of giving it a kick up the butt and moving it on. And then there's the the plight of the landlord, then there's the plight of the renter. Tony, any views on this? Because I know you, you, you really have championed by to let this it is there is some good news in this, but do you think it's gonna create or maintain the buoyancy with the buy to let market that the government hope it will? I don't think it will make much difference because I think most landlords weren't doing anything anyway towards the impending regulation. So I don't think it'll change that. Obviously you've got landlords to a degree, offloading property. But we're not seeing that as a lender. Our, our redemptions in buy-to-let and even our you know, uh, remortgaging at maturity is not there because there's not many places for them to go to in order to get, well, A, the hassle, but B, affordability. It's much easier to stay with the lender you're with where you're not going through that affordability hurdle again. So I don't think... I think it's a it's it's a probably a uh, a knee off the neck for the market a little bit, shall we say? But I don't think I don't think it will make that much of a difference. Um, but because ICRs are still extremely difficult hurdles to overcome for for most, you know, there's I'm sure the other two can tell us, but there's no money in a single AST anymore. For a, for a new landlord, you know, it's very yeah. hard to do that. You know, yeah. so if you're if you're an existing portfolio, then there's opportunities. If you're looking to become a first time investor, then it's really hard to see a way forward at the moment in a single AST property, a single household property. You're looking at HMOs, mm. which brings in its own challenges because not many people will lend to somebody. He's a first-time landlord, first-time buyer in an HMO. Mm. But that's the only way to get a yield that makes the investment possible. So it's challenging. But, you know, all of these, is all of this, the market's resilient. It'll find a way to do something to support somewhere. And we just got to keep, you know, for those who are portfolio landlords, they're still kind of doing all right, as far as I'm aware. I'm not hearing any wholesale portfolios collapsing, but obviously Ray and Phil might have a different view. Yeah, we've seen landlords changing their portfolios of property types, so selling some of the more older properties and tending to buy up more new builds, which tended to be more energy efficient. So it'll be interesting to see whether that trend continues or or not. That'll be interesting. Then, as Tony said, you know, we're seen more interesting HMOs and, and the other optic that I've heard about more although we're not we're not specifically in that market is again holiday lets or short-term lets more mm-hmm. demand for those and I'm, I'm assuming that's due to you know uh, yield opportunities Ray I don't know if you you've got anything to say on that before we move on uh, well the only thing I'd really add to that is I mean I probably agree with Tony um, I, I think that Landlords who, who might have dismissed the possibility of buying a property that had an EPC rating of less than C um, now you know might reconsider it. You know the 2025 deadline was never put in, set into stone, and it it had already been mooted. It would be moved to 2028. But if yeah. even 2028 means you're not going to buy a property that would require that, so now that has been taken off the table. Uh, I think you might find some buy to let landlords who, who would perhaps be looking at cheaper properties um, in that in that DC DE category that they wouldn't have considered before. So it'd be interesting to see how lenders respond to that because at the moment, obviously, uh, I'm not sure that the target's still there, Tony. But you, lenders did have a target from the government to have a proportion of their mortgage book C rating or above by a certain date. Is that still yeah. in place? I'm not aware. I'd have to check that, to be honest. Um, it's certainly, you know, it's certainly there, but it's not in any in any project status for us, put it that way. So it's not an impending deadline. Was it, tw- I can't even remember the dates for it. Was it like 2030 or something we had to 
uh, an average C rating across the book. Wasn't it, Phil, if you remember? I think so. Yeah, again, that's something yeah. I'd have to check in. It's, it's certainly not anything we were feeling heat over. No, uh, it's not. It's not blind yeah. panic. Yeah, this but, is coming up soon. It's obviously not no. something that's been pushed too hard yet. Yeah. Well, we are, you know, as, as all lenders are, we are looking at how do we correctly gauge our book? Because, you know, in most of the cases, we don't ask the questions. We've got absolutely no idea, if I'm honest, um, or it's completely out of date. Um, so it's going to be an interesting one. It will be an interesting one. Just staying with it, because I'm just picking up the topics we talked about last year. So just uh, one of the one of the areas that we talked about, and we do like to talk about quite a lot, Tony, uh, was the self-employed. Uh, we talked about how rough it was for them last year and how much they got kicked in the guts um, after the mini budget. Um, I know as a lender, you've done a lot in this area. Um, so let's come to you two first uh, about Saffron and what you've done and what you've seen in the market and why you did it. And then maybe we can go to Ray and find out how the market wide looks for self-employed. But Tony, just uh, for those that might not have heard the previous podcast, might not know what you've done and might not know what your opinions are, what, you know, how did it affect the self-employed? What did you do to help them? Well, we've just been a champion of the self-employed um, kind of even before the pandemic, really, if we go back that far, it's always been a, a target category for us uh, to, to support self-employed um, owners, business owners. Um, so I think post-pandemic, we were one of the first lenders to discount the pandemic year. So that's probably the first thing we did. You know, that's that's old hat. Everybody does that now because we're running out of that three-year cycle. But no, for the, we we helped that so that people weren't panicking about this huge profit, nothing profit scenario. And we started taking final year as standard, which we still do. So if the, if the business is showing a upwards growth trend, we don't automatically average it and take that benefit away from that self-employed business owner that's worked really hard to, to grow their business. If it's substantial, we'll have a little look and make sure that that is sustainable. But that's one way we've done it. We also, we've been an advocate and been in the market for one year, self-employed all the time. And we're now, you know, delighted we're at 90% and have a five-year fixed rate back in that market. So we're very comfortable for those who haven't been trading long as well to support. So, and we've just done a lot of research uh, through um, using YouGov on the self-employed to understand the challenges that they face. And, you know, I, I know a lot of lenders have done a lot of analysis on this, but the biggest thing that we saw was the lack of education. And I know we've used that already across financial in in general, but our research showed that you know, eight out of 10 self-employed um, people who were looking for mortgages didn't believe they could get one. And, and only over half didn't even know where to start to look for it. So that's got us on an education campaign to look at ourselves as a lender, but also put out there to lenders and brokers, what does your website say about what you do? Because if three quarters of your audience say that they didn't know they could get a mortgage, all of us need to look at how we explain this because we're missing huge opportunities to support an area that thinks it's worse off mm. than it is. So that's the kind of big thing that we're doing, just pushing up that education around. If you're self-employed, you can get a mortgage generally. Obviously, if it's a, if it's a sustainable business, Come and speak to a, and this is where we say, and Phil's already said it, go and find a professional mortgage advisor because they will be able to unlock those myths and help you out. I think the self-employed for me, the story that stuck out for me was, I think, it, I can't remember the exact figure I've been trying to find. It was something like 37% of um, products became unaffordable for them at the start of the mini budget last year. So if you've got research saying they didn't think they can get one anywhere, you've got stories generated out there saying, look, you, uh, at least uh, over a third of your products are going to be unaffordable for you anyway. There must have been like an absolute meltdown in the sector of people going, there's just no point after the mini budget. <coughs> Excuse me. Thanks for that. So, um, Ray, coming to you, last topic on my list before we do our predictions, and this on Later Live, something you, you educated me on uh, a little bit earlier on today, uh, that some rules have been changed to accommodate hybrid products. So maybe you can just, for the brokers in the audience who might not have read up on it yet or might not be aware, just let us know what you've found out. 
Uh, fine, thanks, Jay. Well, the FCA uh, very recently uh, amended the definition of a Rio mortgage to accommodate hybrid mortgages that some lenders in the lifetime mortgage market want to introduce. So what, what, uh, there are um, one or two lenders now offering products on a hybrid basis where they start off as a Rio and then revert to a lifetime mortgage at some specified future date. Um, the, 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 the rationale for that from the lender's perspective um, is that in the early years, while people are still working, they can afford to pay the interest and they'd like to encourage them to pay the interest. But recognise that from the customer's point of view, ha having a guarantee that the mortgage will be there long term rather than having to repay it when they stop working has some value. Um, now, I, I, I think that f for, many, for many customers for whom that mortgage might be available, they will probably be able to get um, an alternative Rio or even a mainstream mortgage from some of the smaller building societies, for example, who are in that market, um, and, and then perhaps look at a later stage to switch into a lifetime mortgage. But the fact remains, it's an interesting example of how lenders in the lifetime mortgage market are trying to develop new products to reflect the fact that clearly their lending volumes have gone down even more than people in the mainstream market. One product in the hybrid space, which I think might be in, would in fact be interesting, would be replicating the type of product we have in the mainstream market, where you can do part interest only up to say 50 or 60%, and then part repayment up to maybe 75, 80%. Uh, if you had a hybrid mortgage that was part interest only, um, um, uh, and, and, and part lifetime from from day uh, from day one, then again that would give people another option, uh, and I think there may be some lenders looking at that type of option. So uh, just ready to flag up that if you are a broker that operates in the in in the Rio market, we have got now a revised definition of Rios, which means that if you are offering a whole of market proposition. Um, if these products, which are currently only on pilot, come into the, uh, the whole market, that would be another product people need to be aware of. And we've also got, of course, a couple of lenders, at least Hodge and Livemore, who've got a minimum age of 50 for their later life, later life products. Uh, so Livemore in particular are being quite innovative in terms of introducing new products in that space. So for, for, for any broker, they're undoubtedly going to have a significant proportion of clients who are age 50 or over. Um, and it does mean that that market, uh, you know, one needs to be very aware of, e even if most of your clients are still going to be in the mainstream market. There we go. That was really insightful. Thank you, Ray. And I'm going to have to be the party pooper because we are running out of time. So in our last couple of <laughs> minutes, we always do this. I've got about 20 more questions written down here. I've been skipping around all over the place trying to get everything in I wanted to. So going to come to you. So we are now going to be uh, November 2024. Where are we going to be, Phil? This is your right on the spot Ooh. question, yeah? yeah. Uh, crystal balls out, guys. Yeah. Get ready. I, I think we'll be in a similar, but rates-wise, I think we'll be in a similar position to where we are today. Um, barring any unexpected world events that we're, we don't know might happen but that's that's where i think we'll be tony i kind of kind of agree you know i think we'll see this what we'll see is fixed rates largely lower than base rate which is always odd <laughs> because you shouldn't have a rate lower than your base rate but it's the only way to get volume if you're fighting on volume so i think it'll all depend on what lenders volume aspirations are for next mm -hmm. year in the mainstream as to what happens to the downward pressure on fixed rates um i don't think we'll see any change in base rate as i said earlier it might drop a bit but i think they're going to want to stubbornly get inflation under control before anything else is done so i think a very similar market i think house prices are not they're, they are slowly deflating to probably an actual norm rather than a, an inflated high. Um, and they're for, but I do think, I do think lenders are starting to innovate on affordability. So I'd like to think we'll see other innov innovation around affordability hitting the market in the next 12 months. That's what I'd like to see. 
There we go. Ray, will you come back next year and we'll go we'll go over it and see how our prediction did this time? Because you predicted the book the mortgage charter last year. <laughs> so maybe we'll we'll come back and actually review and see where we all actually sat on that. Um so on that, that that's it. Ray, thank you again uh, for, for, for brilliant insight. Another brilliant podcast. Uh, a year on. Uh, do come back in, in November 2024 and let's do it all again and let's talk about uh, our predictions. Um, anybody who would like any information on, on what we've done now, uh, wherever you listen to your podcast, I'll put some links to everyone's LinkedIn so you can send anyone a message privately if you'd like to chat about anything we've talked about. And do um, keep following the Saffron for Intermediaries LinkedIn page where you can keep up to date on all news, insights, and other things where Tony's been punting himself out in the media, some great stories and and commentary um, darting around there. So do give that a follow. And we will be back with you in December. So that'll be our, our final one of the year. Um, so from all of us, uh, it's a big thank you. Uh, Ray, superb, as always. Thank you so much, Tony, Phil, and... I'll see you next month.